I probably don't need to rehearse the history for you, how the pilgrims left the tyranny of England's king, survived a harsh winter with help from Native Americans, and how eventually, well, eventually we decided we would eat a lot of turkey, watch the Dallas Cowboys, and go to the Plaza Lighting. All of that is documented in the history books, and you know it well. But you may not know the history of Christ the King Sunday, which is a very newcomer to the scene, less than 100 years old. In 1925, the Roman Catholic Church, followed not too long after that by the Protestants, established the last Sunday of the Christian year before Advent to be this day of honoring Christ as monarch, as king, as the one who reigns. And that's basically the idea that we would, as the psalm says, enter into God's presence with thanksgiving, a very timely theme, and worship the one who is the king above all other gods and kings. But that seems in some ways to be the lowest hanging fruit in this psalm. In, in other words, it could even, it could even go lower than that. It, it could be that we would somehow just sort of find ourselves wrapped up in a kind of blanket of, well, I'm just glad that I have food and that I can watch football and that I can be with family. And, you know, yeah, it's terrible that other things go on in the world, but we give thanks to God this day. But I think there is a deeper truth here anyway in this passage. And that is that God slash Christ is an entirely different kind of king from the rulers of the earth. The book of Psalms was Israel's prayer book and hymnal all rolled into one. And this particular psalm is in a section of enthronement psalms, psalms about the kingship of God. The prayer book and hymnal that Israel used also was the prayer book and hymnal of Jesus and the evangelist who wrote down our four gospels. And so it's not surprising then that when they get around to telling the story of Jesus Christ, his entire ministry and life is in some ways set over against and in contrast to all the other rulers. All throughout the Gospels, there are emperors and prefects and governors and kings surrounding the story of Jesus, and it's always a marked contrast. Even before he is born, his birth is set up in Bethlehem because of a census which results in taxes. And when he is just a toddler, he barely escapes slaughter from King Herod, who, as you may remember, claims to have religious interest in the child. That is not the last time that a public official put his hand on the Bible and claimed to be doing good only to enact policies that slaughtered innocents. There's no way to know for sure that the four gospel writers had Psalm 95 in their mind, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least that they're going to tell the story of a king who is very different from all the other rulers. I'll give you just a few examples. When Herod, King Herod, has a banquet, 
He invites all of the elite and the beautiful people. They are there at the king's wishes because, well, his coffers can't afford it. The people have been taxed, the money has come, and they have the big banquet. And things get just a little bit out of hand when the king is pleased with a dance and he foolishly grants a request which leads to the death, the beheading of John the Baptist. It's a different way of being in the world. The king, of course, was upset because John the Baptist had been preaching against his affair. And of course, kings can't have sexual misconduct in the news cycle. You know that, right? But Jesus has a banquet right next to it. The gospel writers put these two things side by side. Next to Herod's banquet, which leads to death, Jesus feeds thousands, 5,000, 4,000 men, including women and children, and he feeds them for free. In the psalm, it makes a stress on God being the God of the land and the seas, but that's what the emperors of Rome claimed. And in fact, Herod and the emperors had started taxing fish and bread, and Jesus gives it away for free. Instead of abusing women and children and neglecting, Jesus feeds them, cares for them. When he gets around to entering Jerusalem in the last days of his life, he does not ride in on a white stallion. He comes clip-clopping into the holy city on a donkey. He's a different kind of king. He doesn't raise a sword in triumph. No. He looks out over the city and he starts to cry because he wishes they knew the things that make for peace. But they don't. Jesus' reign is, is totally different. There are kings who toy with rogue nations. There are kings that will send troops into war, needless wars. And Jesus, he's a different kind of king. He's all about peace and gentleness. When he goes to trial, you remember in Pilate's headquarters, the prefect Pilate, this fascinating scene in John's gospel. Pilate keeps going out on the balcony to talk to the crowds and then back in because Jesus is being accused of being the king of the Jews. And he goes back and forth. And John gives so many verbs to Pilate. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. He just keeps moving. And, and Jesus is just very calm. There are kings of the world who worry about poll numbers. They worry about trends. They worry about everything. And Jesus is a very different kind of king. When I was on sabbatical some years ago, the family went with, uh, with me to England for a few months. And we did all the great tourist things, including looking at old castles and even modern castles that are different residences of the queen, Windsor and Eton and others. And I remember how massive they were, of course, and then the guide pointed something out, that if you had an audience with the king, 
you would, of course, wait, because kings are important and, well, you're not. And you would wait in these huge halls because you were meant to feel small. But as you got to the next room, and then the next room, the, the rooms got smaller until eventually you were into the presence of royalty in a very small room because the king needed to fill up that room, and the king, of course, would be lifted up on a throne, and you would be down below because, well, you're not very important. And we've probably all heard stories of bosses who call the, somebody into the office and have them sit in that dumpy couch while he stands up over them. And King Jesus is totally different from that. Because here's the thing. In the Gospels, he's not a king. He's not a king at all. I mean, the Gospels tell about how the crowds want to make him king, but he keeps refusing. He doesn't want to be their king. It's almost like Israel's story. You remember they always wanted a king. They'd look around and say, gosh, everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? Can't we have a king? Come on, God, give us a king. And what does God give them? A shepherd boy. God wants them to have a shepherd, not a king. And that's who Jesus is, the good shepherd. When he looks out over those thousands of hungry and homeless people, he says it was because they look like sheep without a shepherd. Several years ago, um, I was in Scotland. Some of you know I'm, I'm a golfer, and so one of the great joys of my life was getting to play in St. Andrews, Scotland. And I only got there because I'd been invited to lecture at a university or to preach in a church, and that was the only way. But it was a great treat. And on one particular Sunday, which is about as good a Sunday as it gets, not only did I get to play golf in the afternoon, but I had preached in two of those great Scottish churches in St. Andrews. One of them was a tall steeple church, a landmark that golfers aim at on the Inward Nine. But the other one was a small village church in Cameron, pastor had taken me out there. I, I, I can hardly describe just how quaint this church was. They, they had a bell that rang, but of course churches nowadays, they do that a little bit, but it's mostly symbolic. But in this lush valley, when they rang the bell, it was for people to actually come out of their homes and walk down the hillside to the church. That's how quaint it was. But on this particular day, we had an extra visitor. Now, you have to picture a small church, but in the chancel area, the window was probably only 10 feet to the left of me, and, and on this side, maybe 10 more feet. But on this particular day, with the window shutters open, a lamb, a sheep, stuck his head in through the window. And instantly, my mind thought of Vox, sheep may safely graze. It's a great image. In a world where the leaders assault and harass women, where the poor are neglected, where taxes are totally unfair, Jesus is a good shepherd. And in his presence, we may safely grace. 
I don't, I don't know if this image will make much sense to you, but we, we have a son and we have two daughters and all three are grown and married. And, but when our two daughters were growing up and became interested in boys, you know, young teens, something like that, they naturally wanted to tell us about the boy and, and they would say something about, oh, he's so good looking, he's so good looking. And, and I always wanted to ask them something that would make them think beyond looks. And so I, I got around to finally formulating a question. And this week when I was working on the sermon, one of my daughters called and I said, hey, by the way, do you happen to remember what I would say to you and your sister when you started being interested in boys? And without hesitation, she said, oh yeah, I remember. I said, what? And she said, well, you, you really wanted to know if they were gentle and kind toward women, but you came up with this test question, and it was, how does he treat dogs and little kids? I still stand by that advice. But here's the thing. I think it's the litmus test for messiahs and world leaders. Jesus is not a king. As the hymn writer put it, he's a, a shepherd. And much we need his tender care. I mean, isn't that the truth? 